everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Jared Adams, who was wrongly convicted of rape and now is himself an attorney fighting for the wrongly convicted. He recently published a book on his experience. Welcome to the show, Jared. Thank you, David. I appreciate you having me on. I've actually worked with Jared covering one of his wrongful conviction cases prior to reading the book, but I was really blown away uh, by your your life story. Um, one of the things I really appreciated about reading your book is it really didn't feel like I was reading something written by an attorney, but it rather you almost took us into your shoes at the time rather than kind of your current self. And was that kind of your thought process as you did the book? Yeah, I mean, it was, David, and I appreciate you asking that question and pointing that out. But, you know, I'm an avid reader and I read a ton of of books on wrongful convictions and a a ton of legal novels. And one of the things that, that I've found is that people will read the book, be appalled, but not really have a call to action because it's not because they don't have the desire. It's because most people just don't know what to do to help. So in order to try to, to, to give people a walk away, I needed to put you in the shoes of me as a kid because anyone with a kid, a son, a brother, a nephew, a f- there's no way. You couldn't look at and read this story and say, you, I gotta do something and here's what I could possibly do. Maybe I could be a mentor. Maybe I can decide to take one case on as an attorney. You know, Maybe we can advocate and make sure that people are educated about the judges we vote in. Maybe we, we can advocate the public about the prosecutors because I read this book. So that's why it was so important to try my best to remove all legalities and break it down in terms of, this could be me, this could be you. Yeah, and what we saw was a scared kid that didn't understand how he got into the position he was in. Yeah, and and David, the unfortunate thing um, that I learned while going through this process was I wasn't the only one. And I kept, you know, assuming that and asking the question of why me? Why did this have to happen to me? But as I started to go through prison and I realized that there were 
a number of individuals who were in similar situations because it, it wasn't the case or their case. It's the system. Um, and, and also, I, I guess, to start here, you know, briefly tell us uh, your story. Obviously, you can't do it justice in a few yeah. minutes, but, you know, kind of an overview of what happened. I was a 17-year-old along with, with two other friends from Chicago. We were kids who, you know, had high school diplomas, you know, no arrest. You know, this isn't your typical, you know, well, they shouldn't have been here or there. Uh, we decided to go to a party and there was a consensual encounter and we were falsely accused of a rape where the authorities had the evidence of exoneration in their hands from the very beginning. And that was the evidence of a statement which completely undermined the false allegations. And so they withheld the statement from my defense team and from my co-defendants. We, you know, I was ultimately convicted along with one co-defendant sentenced to serve almost 28 years in prison until the Wisconsin Innocence Project took my case, litigated it all the way to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, where they unanimously reversed my conviction and the courts uh, dismissed and expunged my record. I came home in February of 2007 and I wasn't uh, the same scared kid uh, who went in and I was now uh, a scared uh, a young man coming home in the same position as the 17-year-old kid who was kidnapped, you know, because of the un un unjust case. And I had to figure out a way of putting my life back together. And I had never been compensated. I have still never been compensated. And my mom and stepfather were on fixed incomes because they retired. And so I was thankful to have that house to call my home. And I didn't feel sad for myself. I got up enrolled um, in junior college, signed up for therapy, and graduated with my associate's degree, bachelor's degree, law degree, clerked in the same circuit that overturned my conviction, went on to clerk in the Southern District of New York, started to work at the Innocence Project as its first exonerated post-conviction litigation fellow. I practiced law there for almost two years, and then I went on to open my very first firm in Manhattan in New York, and I now have offices in New York, Milwaukee, Chicago, and I'm working on one in Los Angeles. And the nonprofit that we built is designed to attack cases like mine, wrongful convictions, and also help men and women reintegrate back into society. Um, just to back up uh, a step. So um, the crime that you were accused of never really occurred, right? never occurred. It was a false claim. And there are a number of these cases with false claims. And, you know, these are always hard because, you know, we're, we're taught, okay, believe the woman, believe the woman. And often that's the right, uh, uh, you know, uh, frame of mind, but that led you into a bad place. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that what, what needs to happen is this, we need to, to evaluate cases individually. And not and not go in with the same biases and preconceived notions, you know, that that dangerously um, infringe upon people's constitutional rights to be presumed innocent before found guilty. And in this situation, you know, we had we were kids. You know, I can't stress this enough. We were kids, David. We were 17 year old kids at a college party drinking. Um, 
you know, smoking marijuana, you know, am I naming anything that no college campus doesn't have right now? Nope. The difference, the difference was this, our accuser was white and we're three black kids from Chicago. And it doesn't matter about the truth when you're an African-American man, in my opinion, it just matters about the accusation and who's accusing you. What went wrong in terms of, uh, you know, your conviction? How do you go from, you know, uh, innocence to getting convicted? Because I, I think a lot of people get hung up on this point. They figure that you had to have done something wrong. And sometimes, you know, people are in the wrong place. And you could argue, okay, 17-year-old kid shouldn't be at a college party. But on the other hand, you know, you really weren't doing anything that, you know, an 18-year-old kid wouldn't have been doing. Yeah. I mean, what, what plagued me is, is my access to resources. And that's the same thing that plagues 70% of those who are faced with the criminal justice system because our, our country is reliance upwards of 70% or more on public defense and the public defense system. And I was one of those uh, 70%. Um, and, and my mom couldn't afford an attorney. So we had an attorney appointed to us off of a panel list in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. And it directly impacted my case because my attorney decided that he wasn't going to call any witnesses before he even investigated my case. In his mind, it was an accusation only case. And that wasn't enough to meet the standard. The one thing that he wasn't taking into account is the fact that, again, that this race element is real. For those who are listening and think that this is just some card that's being laid and played, I mean, I think that you can just do a Google search to see the number of cases where that, that you know, um, opposes that conclusion. This, this criminal justice system is about race and resources. And for me, David, I was on the, on the, on the short end of both of those sticks. And we'll get back to that uh, point in a minute. Um, but, you know, I do want to um, talk a little bit about how you go from being wrongly convicted to serving and, and also, what was it, eight years in prison, nine years in prison? I round off to almost 10 years because there's pretrial. Good you know, point. Yeah, and a lot of people don't, don't consider that. I mean, but I do, you know, so... Yeah, I, I wound up and I say almost 10 years in prison. And sadly, you know, as as we look at some of these wrongful conviction cases, you're one of the lucky ones. I mean, not only do you get out, but you got out while you were fairly young and you had a chance to actually, you know, go back and go to college and uh, and become an attorney. You know, some of these people that are in there for 20, 30, 40 years don't get that opportunity. So, um, you know, I'm not. I'm not saying you had a picnic in there, um, but, you know, could have been worse on, on that front. But how did you get involved in, in the law? Because uh, you have an interesting story on that, too. So I, I just I had a cellmate who um, had the opportunity to look at my, my paperwork and my cellmate went over it. He was a guy who spent time in a law library, so he went over it. And, you know, I described this in detail in the book and, you know, he, he sat me down and he's like, I've never in my life seen a case as weak as this that filled every weakness 
with race and saying the three black men, the three black men. I mean, at the end of, 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 of you know, reading the paperwork, he said, I thought your name was the three black men from Chicago. So it was through his encouragement to start to work on my case. Because essentially what he said was, you're around here playing basketball, playing chess and working out. I mean, you act like you waved the white flag and that you're on a four-year college campus. You're not. He says, it's only a matter of time before you have a tattoo teardrop under your eye, a tattoo on your neck, and you're in a revolving cycle that most of those guys you're playing basketball is in. You're smarter than that. Use your brain. It's the biggest weapon you have behind bars. And so I started to, to put my case together. It was painstaking though. I mean, I had a high school education from Chicago. Didn't know much, never went into college. And I found myself trying to grasp the law through one case at a time. And I eventually started to, to, to grasp it, to be able to articulate it, because you can't articulate it unless you understand it. And so I was able to understand it and I started to write stronger letters asking for help. And eventually people started to answer. And one of those people, um, one of those entities was the Wisconsin Innocence Project. And so how did that process work? And, and how far in uh, did you actually start, uh, you know, working with them? So it was at the end, it was right after I had exhausted all of my remedies um, in, in appellate court. And it was time to go on to federal court. And when you go to federal court, you have no attorney afforded to you. So many men and women are missing out on articulable issues to argue because they can't afford to argue it. And if they go pro se, the chances of winning on pro se are next to none. So I, I just can't tell you, I mean, my, my palms sweat right now, thinking about how close I came to not being able to get my filing in. I had a deadline of two years after the, the, uh, the uh, final state filing, um, final state uh, appeal, appellate decision. And after that final state appellate decision, I literally spent two years trying to draft my own petition and also look for a lawyer. I got the help of the Wisconsin Innocence Project through sending them a letter and, and copies of what I you know, planning plan to file. They came, interviewed me, took my case, and they came and saw me and took my case in a matter of, of 30 days before my deadline was about to expire. That is crazy. Yeah, I mean, I literally could have been procedurally barred and not able to, to, to get out of that situation like my co-defendant, even though he was released three months after I did, he missed the procedural deadline. So the conviction remains on his record. They just gave him time served as a result. Thinking about um, this experience, how does it help guide your work? I mean, I would say this. I'm like, I can see the field like Patrick Mahomes. As a result of going through this, I know what I'm looking for. I know what's a waste of time. And I know how to communicate with my clients and their families because I have been a similarly situated person before. Um, and this goes to why it's so important to have directly impacted people a part of any reform and not just a part of it, they can't just be a decoration. They need to be an instrumental part of the decision-making of what happens. And that's why building life after justice, building the law firm, advocating on behalf of those, 
I'm literally paying for what the opportunities were, were afforded to me. And that's what I think that needs to be done to really overhaul the system. So tell us about some of your current work. Um, tell us about life after justice and, and also some of your current cases. So right now with life after justice, what we've done is this, we've created a mini innocence project. And basically we take on a smaller allotment of cases, but we do it because we're trying to set precedent. I'm, I'm just sick and tired of this pizza party at the end of an exoneration where someone is exonerated and everyone stands up and everyone's happy and everyone's hugging and, and it's, it gives off an appearance as if you know, everything is fixed and it's not. Those men and women go off to struggle reintegrating back into society. As, as, as little as 10% of the population of all those exonerated ever are successful on, on civil claims. So you, you have a group of people who are displaced as a result of the, the pitfalls of the criminal justice system. And then they're made to go put their lives back together on their own. It needs to stop, David. There are a number of law firms out here right now who've made a ton of money on wrongful conviction cases, but there aren't many law firms who've taken that money and then invested it back into the pool of people, both to reintegrate back into society and to create laws that prevent and try to safeguard against wrongful convictions. And I think that a lot of that is because there's no law firm led up until this point by a directly impacted, exonerated person. And that's why I'm trying to change. It's, I don't, I'm not throwing mud at people. I'm spitting facts. I got out, you know, 2007. The same issues that existed then with no health care, no help. It's the same issues that exist right now. And it shouldn't be. You can't settle suits for millions of dollars and not put something back into the system of those that you know won't get anything, not because they're less innocent or more innocent. It's because of the procedural issues in, in, in the laws, the bad laws dealing with immunity that don't allow recovery. So it's something that we, we, we are taking on and moving towards funding to help people uh, when they come home and also funding to help litigation to, to put together a class action suit on behalf of all those wrongfully convicted that come home and they come home to nothing. We also have cases, individual cases. We're working on these individual cases because we're trying to litigate these, litigate these cases and use them as tests to show why law should be implemented. For example, the Noron Dozier case. Noron Dozier case is a case that you guys covered, um, a wrongful conviction case that Life After Justice has and that we're working on. This is a case where had, had there been a requirement that every interaction by police be recorded, then we would really know what happened as to how police arrested an identified suspect who has the car keys of the murder vehicle in his pocket, clear him in less than 24 hours and go after Naran Dozier with nothing of an explanation as to why. We literally are left to take the words of the authorities. And as citizens who pay a high price, 
I think that we deserve full transparency. And that's just one example of what we're trying to do with Life After Justice. Yeah, and I think, you know, you raise a good point because often, uh, you know, these these uh, exonerations are kind of like Hollywood movies. Um, you know, uh, they the, the uh, court hits the gavel, everybody runs outside, they have, you know, the pizza party or whatever, uh, you know, they're all hugging and crying and, and the lights dim and they go off, you know, happily ever after. Except in the real world, you know, um, the movie doesn't stop at that point. They got to continue with their lives. And one of the things that we've learned, uh, you know, is that um, a lot of the programs that are put in to support formerly incarcerated people don't even apply to wrongly convicted people. They don't apply for job training. They don't, they don't get their two to $100 gate money or whatever the state uh, does. That, you know, and so, you know, I know that I, I know a guy, he, he got exonerated in 2011. And I guess at this point, he's one of the lucky ones. But, you know, he was living uh, practically on the streets for 10 years. And he finally got a settlement from uh, the city of San Francisco uh, for, for several million dollars that he has to share uh, with his attorneys and everything. So, yeah. I, I mean, he's better off than most people, as you said. But, you know, he had to live 10 years of hell. Yeah. And I know Maurice Caldwell. So I know exactly who you're talking about, man. And I know him personally. And we've shared many stories about just that, you know, and, and, and it's one of these things where, you know, life, if, if, if you're, if the court reverses a conviction and orders it to go back to its beginning stages, then too, it should be ordered that the defendant, also the victim in wrongful convictions, should be returned back to his beginning stages. And the only way you can do that is with offering of mental health and health services and compensation immediately. And there's no way you can tell me, well, how do we estimate what goes up each year, David? The cost of what? Living. The cost of living. So how do they estimate the cost of living? And they can't estimate the cost that someone who's been wrongfully convicted, come on. Yeah. So so that sounds like, you know, a really worthwhile endeavor trying to create, um, you know, these support networks and and helping these people out. I mean, a lot of these people, you know, they need job training. They need, you know, a chance to go back to school if they're young enough to do that. Um, they need some money to live on. You know, a lot of People, they're, they're, they're incarcerated so long their support network's gone. So they don't have a family to go back and live, live at anymore. Here's what I like to say, David. There are some people, you know, where you asked me the question earlier about, um, or you made the statement, you said, you know, you have, everyone has a rough experience in prison, but you came out of it, you know, in, in good shape. And I'll tell you something. Um, the most valuable thing that I was able to get out of prison with was my youth and sanity. There are men and women who go through this and they spend so much time in prison that when they come home, 
They're the only leaf left on their family tree. And that goes exactly to the point that you just made. These are people that we're talking about. And I think that this is also a point to be made as well. Um, is the reason why it's such a struggle to get this population help because of its makeup? Because it's 90% black men who are, 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 are dealing with and are involved with these wrongful conviction cases. If it was 90% affluent kids, would, you know, would we have this hesitation to implement laws that safeguard? Would we have this hesitation to um, provide mental health care and health care services when people are immediately released? Would we have, would we have this type of struggle to get laws on the book that afford protections for both police investigating and the people being investigated, as well as the victims in, this case, in these cases? It's not too much to ask, David. So now we have to ask ourselves, why isn't it being done? And why I believe it's not being done is because the value of the life of people of color to our criminal justice system is at the lowest of their metric system in terms of value. This ain't the race car, it's the real car. Go look at the numbers and you tell me why I'm wrong. No, I agree. Um, and, and that leads me back to the, the issue of race. And I want to frame it like this and don't laugh too hard. But I spend a lot of my time trying to explain to older white people, older than me, um, why the criminal justice system is still racist. And it's impossible to convince some of these people um so help me out here because i think your case is a perfect illustration of exactly what's wrong well let me let me say this to, to you um so uh maybe this will help people right and this is coming up it's march easter is coming up imagine if there was an easter egg hunt amongst people. And me and you, David, you know, we're able to pick eggs. Just go pick the eggs. We're telling another group, we're not letting you pick eggs based off of nothing more than how you look, right? And eventually, we start feeling bad about that. And we decide to let the other group pick eggs. Well, David, me and you have been picking eggs for quite some time. We, we got a bunch of eggs. We're passing these eggs down in our generation, wealth to other folks. And we also, while picking the eggs in this egg picking game, we created the rules. And when we created the rules and the amendments to the rules, we did so with um, just us, you know, no advice or anything like that from the other folks. So um, when you think about that and you think about that, this other group that we've allowed to now pick eggs and we turn around and we say, what's your complaint? 
that you can't find eggs. We're letting you pick now. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Do it all on your own. So for people who can't understand how racism still exists in the criminal justice system, then hopefully that would help you understand. When you allow a group of people to go ahead and create a game and start to play the game before another group, and then you allow that group to come and they're still subjected to the rules you created without their input and their fairness, you create a system that is inherently biased against them. So whether or not the people who are now in the game and in the system, racist themselves, the roots of the game are as prejudiced as its seeds when they were planted. Did I reach you there, David? You reached me, but I'm the converted, so. Yeah, so it's one of these things, man. It's just, you know, it's, it's just crazy. So um, that's what we're dealing with. Tell us what you learned from from writing your book, because you obviously had to relive a lot of your life in order to, to get that book down. And you had to put yourself into the mindset of you when you were 17 years old. Um, what was that like? It was it was traumatic, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I um, you know, I still uh, go to therapy. Uh, I still have tentacles of my wrongful conviction that reach me today as an adult. And it took me two years to write that book. And the reason it took two years is because I had to stop a lot. You know, but I know I needed to keep going because I needed to put people as, as, as close as I could to me as a 17-year-old going through that situation. Because I had hoped that by reading that, when people see little black boys now, they don't see threats and fears. They see them potentially becoming Jared Adams, someone who's a contributor to society. And so it hurt. It hurt a lot, to be honest with you. There were nights where I couldn't sleep and I would fall asleep only to wake up dreaming about the pages that I just wrote, just wrote about. So I hope that when people read this and they struggle through the first two chapters because it's so detailed, um, know that it will be worth it. And the ending is, is me as Jared Adams as I am now, that in order to appreciate fully what I've gone through, you got to read each step along the way. And how do people get your book? My book is sold anywhere books are sold. Uh, Amazon, Random House directly. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, for any, any, any mothers with sons, this is the book for them. Well, I'll confess, I read the book. I loved it. I cried. Um, I always cry when they get exonerated. Uh, I guess I'm a softy, but uh, I, I've cried too many times uh, reading books lately. Um, but really strongly recommend the book. Um, and thank you uh, for, for coming on the show. Um, we've been trying to have you for, for some time. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm not kidding. That was a really moving book. And it's a unique book to read uh, because of the mindset that it takes you through, that this isn't written by an attorney. 
it's written from the perspective of that 17 year old kid who doesn't know what's going on in the world. Yeah, yeah. All right, David, I can't thank you enough, man. I want you to have me back on. Um, and thank you again for always keeping in touch and being responsive. This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Jared Adams, wrongly, formerly wrongly convicted, and now an attorney fighting to free other people and give other people a good life. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.